Don't even notice the, the slide. I don't even know if you see it uh, online. Uh, it's a little bit of a job trying to get the lighting so you can see a person and see the slide at the same time. Uh, but basically this is a political rally. Uh, there's a guy at the front with a red baseball cap and uh, that is a gentleman known, we know as Donald Trump. Uh, and there's a few other people and there's a glorious placard right in the centre that says, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for President Trump. Currently, and I find it impossible that anyone uh, could have missed it, Donald Trump is the president of the wealthiest country on earth. On Tuesday, the 3rd of November, the USA will go again to the polls to consider who their next uh, president should be. Some, uh, many millions of Americans have already voted, uh, but that's kind of their to the general election day. It's a referendum on uh, Donald Trump over the uh, uh, last four years and uh, whether they want to continue in the direction he's taken the country or uh, whether they're to adopt a guy called Joe uh, Biden. He was kind of vice president under uh, um, Barack Obama and uh, those are the two options uh, for the people of the United States. Now there have been a myriad of credible accusations, and not they're wild ones, uh, there are credible accusations that Donald Trump is incompetent and immoral. Before he was even elected, there was a, uh, a audio track that just seemed to me uh, made him an impossibility to be elected. However, one of the most loyal components of Donald Trump's electoral base is evangelical Christians. Christians that love the Bible, Christians that would uh, be able to say things like the Apostles' Creed together uh, and uh, want to see the world saved for Jesus. Uh, evangelical Christians uh, that many of us, if we were in America, we would identify with too. They support Donald Trump and they're some of his more ferocious supporters. Why? How is this possible considering the personality and track record of Donald Trump? How do you reconcile Christian values with this guy and what he reportedly gets up to? Well, in the US, there is one particular uh, value that um, has been used as a political tool to coerce believers to go into one party rather than, rather than the other. Sort of 50 years ago, uh, it was kind of evenly spread, but uh, it has been manipulated. Uh, in 1973, there's a very famous um, Supreme Court decision. Uh, it was called Roe versus Wade, and it accepted that a pregnant woman had rights over her own body. And it wasn't up for the state to tell her things. And she could decide, as a grown woman, whether to carry the fetus inside her full term. And uh, 
you can put it in different ways, but I put it deliberately that way, so that perhaps you can see the logic behind that decision. Should we give women a degree uh, of autonomy over their own bodies? And you're like, well, I'm not sure I'd like someone to make a decision over my body and what I can and can't do with it. And that was the argument they used in this Roe versus Wade decision. Now, uh, some clever guys, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan particularly, along with the Republican Party, used this decision to uh, uh, cause Christians who believe in the sanctity of life to come together and oppose it. And so Christian support in the 70s and 80s, particularly fueled by uh, a particular Christian television uh, um, personalities, brought Christians into the Republican Party to the, a further aspect. It, it took on a religious nature, almost. And for many Christians in the US, being part of the Republican Party is almost a given. It is, uh, their political identity is reduced to their opposition to the Roe versus Wade decision and uh, their position on abortion. And because the Republicans are, uh, um, would seek in differing degrees to uh, go against it, the Christians say, you know, I'm a Republican because of that. There are other issues, but it seems that that was a particular tool that brought Christians uh, uh, into the Republican Party. And as we reflect on this, I wonder how you feel. It's not such a big issue here. We, the political parties across the spectrum have kind of accepted abortion, but in the US it's still a debate. I wonder what you think about the legalisation of abortion. It is a delicate issue. Let us not uh, uh, just uh, sort of make it one-dimensional. How important is it in your political considerations as to who should rule the country. Should the sort of killing of unborn children take priority over every other political consideration you have? Because that's what many Christians uh, in the US uh, believe. But it's not so apparent in our country. Now, 50 years before Jesus was born, there was a famous Roman lawyer and statesman, someone whose words were preserved and thought to be uh, important and uh, took the Roman state in a particular direction. His name was Cicero, um, and he wrote on a similar issue. Um, he stated, wrote down, that deformed children should be allowed to be killed. That was his position. Uh, and deformity, it was quite a broad subject. Uh, it could be an uh, unwanted child, a sickly child, uh, uh, someone that's sort of got some sort of physical uh, deformity, or simply a wrong sex child. And so all these were acceptable premises to uh, do away with your progeny, with your children. And in the first century, it was fairly common, fairly acceptable for uh, 
Romans to have children that they realised that they didn't want and to leave them in the street or in rubbish piles and there's a, a, a particular edict that allowed them to uh, neglect them in a, in a cave uh, uh, where they sort of out of sight and sound. In the first century, Christians, followers of Jesus, would rescue them. And I quite like that scenario. Yes. There is um, an inscription on an early Christian grave, and that's what we have here. The, uh, uh, if you can't see it online, don't worry too much, but there's a name at the bottom, uh, Stichorius. Stichorius, the root of his name is rubbish dump. Now, uh, his parents aren't going to be particularly... Uh, the child probably wasn't particularly thrilled to be called after a rubbish dump, but Stichorius refers to the fact that they were rescued from a rubbish dump, that they were rescued and given new life, that their life was salvaged and something was made of it, and their life was held to be holy and worthy of respect. It seems Christians went out actively and searched for, Christ, uh, for children that were abandoned. That they prepared for the circumstances where they would find abandoned children. The Christians would come together and raise funds for these rescue missions. They would organise strategic and systematic searches. They set up orphanages for children that had been abandoned. They set up other institutions to care for the lost. How can Christians believe in the sanctity of human life when the wider society dismisses it? If everyone is saying something about life and Christians are saying another, how does that stand? How come Christians are so passionate about life, even to the point of it costing their pocket, of inviting a, a newborn into their house, of making all sorts of difficult provision for something that someone else thought was inconvenient, impractical or objectionable? How does that happen? If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 139. So it says this in Psalm 139, verse 13. If you haven't got a Bible, just close your eyes and listen to these great words. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me 
were written in your book before whatever of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand when I awake. And so we have this ancient poem preserved for us in the book of Psalms. It talks about God's involvement with human life. We find that God is not only involved in the formation and growth of the unborn fetus, but there is even more to it than that. We find in these words a clear reference to a life that is carefully and deliberately designed and a life that has purpose. That God expects to have a trajectory and a point. There are numerous scenes and uh, circumstances of conception and all sorts of scenarios that uh, babies are born into. But we find just in these words, a powerful defence that every single human life, regardless of its significance to us, has a divinely ordained aspect to it. Whether it is a foreign child or one born to ourselves, every child has this aspect to it this divine care and attention. If you believe these words, if you look at Psalm 139 and think it applies to humankind, we find here a very, very, very potent and powerful defence that every single human life is important. And it is very hard to say that abortion, infanticide or child neglect is acceptable because God thinks every single human is important. If God thinks it, are we not to as well? Suddenly, every life has value. Our society will say that glibly sometimes, but it has no basis to say that. We alone can say we know God values every human life, so we need to too. Now my purpose this morning is not to argue against abortion. I don't intend for you to uh, go and give loads of money to the Trump Republican campaign. I'm not asking you to go and firebomb an abortion clinic or write angry letters to your MP, Henry Smith. I have another purpose this morning. Uh, hopefully something a little bit more encouraging. But we need to start with these basics before we move on. If you've got a Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. says this in Jeremiah chapter 1, right at the start of uh, Jeremiah's ministry. Verse 4, 
The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Don't say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. I wonder if you've ever been asked by a child where they were before um, and the euphemism of being in their mother's tummy. Where was I, Dad? Where was I, Mum, before I was in my mother's tummy? I used to not know how to answer that. You didn't exist. You're going to lie and live forever, but you didn't exist before that point. But I really like this passage. This passage tells us that God knew Jeremiah before he was conceived. Before he was in the womb, God knew him. I don't think this just applies to Jeremiah. I love telling my kids that God was thinking and planning them before Sam and I got together. They're in God's mind that they were going to come. They were written in his book. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Doesn't that suddenly make life more important? Suddenly doesn't that make every life more important? Now we are blessed with something like 7 billion lives on this, so it's easy to get a little bit blasé about them. But nevertheless, the scriptural truth rings true. Before they're in the womb, God knows each of these lives. And he had books about them. He had his mind's eye set on them. And in this rousing passage about God knowing people before they were even conceived, we find here a divine purpose. It's not just a vague human blessing, you know, oh, you can be bored and enjoy the trees and walks in Buckham Park and uh, whatever delights life has to offer you. We find here, in Jeremiah's life, a very definite divine purpose you are going to speak the words that I give you to the people I send you to. Jeremiah didn't volunteer for this. He was assigned it by the heavenly careers advice before he even got a chance to open his mouth. Before he was born, before he was conceived, the careers advisor in heaven decided this was his job. I don't think that Jeremiah is unique in this. Jeremiah is not the only one that had this said about him. If you've got a Bible again, turn to Galatians chapter 1. And again, I make no apology in uh, sort of uh, rushing through our Bibles because uh, we need to know them back to front and uh, enjoy the words and allow them to saturate our hearts. And it says this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
If you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that all I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard this report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. If anyone ever thinks that they are excluded from church, from the gospel, from salvation, you should find Paul the most reassuring example. Here is a Christian killer who God redeemed and made his most fierce advocate. But we find here this confession of Paul's that his life was a mess before he met Jesus. He was going the wrong way. He was doing terrible things to believers. But once he encounters his saviour, Paul awakes. And you have some testimonies where it takes them a while to realise who Jesus is. But for, for Paul, he instantly uh, is convicted and his life immediately changes and he becomes this most wonderful missionary to all parts of the Roman Empire. He has this uh, plan uh, and mission that he gets involved with. Wow, some of you are thinking, it must be great to live with such a blessing, to feel such a calling, to know that one's life is going in such a direction. Well, hold on, because Paul has something to say that obviously covers everyone. Um, let me read a couple of verses earlier. Verse 6 in Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. The book of Galatians is full of Paul's indignation that these Galatians were forsaking the gospel of grace for legalism. And the root of Paul's indignation is this word, kalia, this word uh, that we translate into calling. These Christians in Galatia had been called by God and had a calling from him to live in grace. And this, Paul makes clear elsewhere, is universally true for Christians. All believers everywhere have this enormous privilege of kalios, of being called by God himself to live in grace. 
You feel like your life's drifting, you're not sure where you are going, you think it's all up to you, that your decisions are completely something for you to take hold of. Paul says, no. You've been called into the grace of Christ. You have less options than you thought. You aren't random responders to a leaflet drop. You aren't uh, uh, accidental attenders to an alpha course and suddenly became Christians. You aren't random people who are accidentally born to Christians and happen to become one yourself. All of us have been called. This caliot applies to every believer. And it doesn't end there. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse uh, 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the married, oh, it's not verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried, be reconciled to her husband, and her husband must not be uh, must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this: uh, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not believing and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving wife, husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. We find this principle that God says, whatever marital status you were called when you become Christians, you stay there. You don't go, oh, now I'm a Christian, I can let you go. I can toddle off on my own. Paul says, no, you stay in that marriage. You became a Christian there. God has intentions for it. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brothers or the sister is not bound in such circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. And we find this very important uh, issue of calling coming in again with Paul. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife. Paul wants the Christian, the called one, to stay in the place where they are, whether it is uh, uh, whatever marriage they are, so that God might use that situation for his glory. And then it goes on. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as what God called them. We find God calling people into their circumstances. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised? When he was called, then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Where you were slave, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free was called is God um, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. And we have this idea that when you are called, you're no longer an autonomous being that can do whatever you want. You are called to a role in life. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings, brothers and sisters. 
Each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in uh, when God called them. Paul makes this really provocative passage. Uh, God calls us with an awareness of our circumstances, our situations, our family, our geography, everything. God calls us with an awareness of that. No one is called by God and then go, oh, flip, I didn't realise you in that situation. Well, I better rescue it. We're called into those points. Whatever our social standing and status, God has called us to serve him there. Our marriage, God has called us to serve him there. Our family, our jobs, our geography. I'm hot on geography because we're a Hebrew church and I have a particular identity with sort of this neighbourhood. These aspects are not uh, random. They're not uh, irrelevant. They are de deliberate and intentional dimensions to us working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have the joy of seeing particular believers become Christians while we've ministered here in Gubrish. And Barry and Ruth and Bianca became believers in Gubrish. And you know what? They're still here and they're still called to serve God here. They are called, and as a Christian in Gubrish, I am called, to know Christ in the co-op. To know him as we walk down Greasehurst Drive. To know him as we wait at Warfield School Gates or at the Bubish Academy. You and I, we may not write books, we may not have YouTube channels, but we have no lesser blessing and calling over our lives than Paul and Jeremiah and the Galatian Christians. Each of us has it. To be a human being is to have purpose. To be a Christian is to be called. So what do we do? What does it look like? How do you behave? Do you just have to pay taxes and go to church? Heaven forbid. Turn in your Bibles to the last scripture reference, Ephesians chapter 2. Says this. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a. I didn't need to read out verse 8, really. But it is so beautiful that it's very difficult to avoid it. We have this core message of grace that it is just wonderful to dwell in. You know, we get hit up and caught up with so many things. So many things distract us and cause our hearts to fall. And then Paul reminds us we've been saved by grace. And suddenly everything matters a little less compared to God's calling on us, that we cannot add or subtract, but he has drawn us to himself 
through his loving actions. But, that's not my main point from this. I also want you to notice that Paul tells us we are created to do good works. Those works aren't random and they aren't decided by you. You don't go to get to go, oh, what good work shall I do? God has prepared the good works in advance for you to do. Before you lift your hand, before uh, you reach for your wallet, before you even think about it, God has prepared good works for each of us to do. There are assignments that God has long ago put down that we are to achieve. I want us to move away from the idea that we are saved and that we try and do good works when we get a chance. That when we can fit them in, you know, when we're not sort of sleeping and working and uh, whatever activities. No. God has saved us to do good works. What good works? The works that he has prepared long in advance for us to do. So I long for us this morning, as I close, to hear this word, Calio. That every moment is a chance to do these good works God has prepared in advance. These epic deeds that may not get on the national uh, TV. They may not get a little Facebook post, but nevertheless, they are divinely ordained, beautiful moments when you are fulfilling your calling. God looked forward to creating each one of us. He had us in his mind. And he, as he was doing that, he had in his mind great things for us to do. Not great as the world thinks, but great as he thinks. And today is an opportunity to look out for them. The rest of our lives are opportunities to look out not just to try hard, but to look out for moments that we can do good works. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word gives us a proper perspective on humanity. God, we recognise that every human being live in a time where there's a lot of them, that every one was carefully made by you. Lord God, we recognise that there in your mind's eye before they were conceived and that, Lord God, you have called some to follow you. Lord God, I pray that we that know you and love you, would live in our calling. We would live with this realisation that by grace we have been saved and that we don't just have to fit in good works when we're not busy or uh, uh, some other strategy, but we need to pay attention for the good works that we are either in the right place for or the right time for or with the right resources for. Lord God, I pray that
we would live to enjoy this epic narrative uh, that you have written out for each of us so that we can give you glory. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.